welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator. You are the sustainer of everyone and everything. You are eternal. You are infinite and unchangeable in your power and in your perfections, in your goodness and in your glory, in your wisdom and in your justice and truth. Nothing happens except through you and your sovereign will. And fathers, we come before you and in awe of you, we're also well aware of our own sinfulness. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy law. We have left undone the things which ought to be done, and we have done things that ought not to be done. Father, we come before you as sinners. We come before you to confess our sin, because we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're so thankful for that promise we have in Jesus. And so, Father, as we come before you this morning wholeheartedly confessing our sin, desiring that forgiveness and cleansing, Lord, we are so thankful that we can be 100% assured that we have received it in Jesus. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses all sin. We thank you that no one has ever run out of the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And no one's ever committed a sin that cannot be covered by that blood. And so we're so thankful. And Father, as we open your word, we know that you alone can order the unruly wills and affections of us sinful people. Father, we pray that you would grant us, your people, to love the things you command and desire the things you promise. Lord, we want to not only do your will out of duty, but we also want to do it out of delight. And so we pray you'd give us hearts that delight in what you have commanded and what you promise. And we pray, Lord, that in this constantly changing world, that our hearts would be so tightly fixed in the only place where real joy can be found, and that's in your Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, Amen. So we're here in James 5. We're at the end of James. It's a really exciting time. We've been in James for quite some time now. We're going to finish up James this morning, and then we're going to next be in Exodus. Super excited about that. That'll be a big gear change because James and Exodus, very different. It's exciting, guys, that God's Word is so varied. He's given us a diet that's so rich and so diverse. We don't have to hear the same type of book all the time, and so we're able to go from a a letter that's very imperative-oriented. There's tons and tons of commands in James. There's more commands per word than any other book in the New Testament. And then to go to Exodus and see God's great plan working out in salvation history. And so super excited for that. So here we are in James, and I I just want to ask you guys, how many people of you guys are going to miss James? How many are going to miss James? Anyone going to miss James? So you can still visit him. Yeah, I knew Josh was going to say. You can still visit him. He's still available. He's still there. He's with you all the time. But I'm going to miss James as well. I think it's going to be amazing. This last part of James here, guys, has two main themes that come together. And the two themes are prayer and community. Because last week we were looking at suffering. And one of the things we saw about suffering is how we process suffering. How do we think about suffering as individuals? This passage, though, is more about how do we deal with suffering and difficulty as a community, okay? And so we're going to look at how we care for one another when we're sick, 
verse 14, when we're sinning, verse 16, and when we're straying, verse 19. And one of the things this reminds us of, guys, is the fact that Christianity is not something you can do alone. Contrary to popular belief, Christianity cannot be done alone. Christianity can't be done alone. It can't be done just with your family. Christianity is about a community of believers. Um, You know, your faith is personal, but your faith can never be private. Those are two different things. Your faith truly is personal, but it's not private. You were born again into a community of people, and we live it out. And this morning, what I want to do is really challenge you to expand your ministry of prayer here. Expand your ministry of prayer for other believers. What I want you to see this morning in this text is I want you to believe the power that God's given you in prayer, and then I want you to imagine how you might use that gift for the benefit of other people in this room, right? And the first way is praying for the sick. Take a look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. Just want to make a couple of observations from this passage. Um, I was talking to Ed about this just a few minutes ago. There's kind of two types of Christians. There's, there's a type that just really ignores this passage. And then there's another type that's kind of obsessed with this passage. And you might be one or the other. And I want to just give you a few observations so we can all get on one board here biblically. And first thing it teaches us is that we suffer as a body. Says anyone sick, let them call the elders. Interesting. Not what our individualistic culture would say. But when we suffer, guys, we suffer as a body. We suffer as a family. 1 Corinthians 12 says, when one member suffers, we all suffer. And just like you can't have just your toe suffer, you can't just have one member of the church body suffer. Right? When one suffers, we all suffer. And, and some of us are, are different about this than others. Some of us, when we suffer, we want everyone to know. Okay? And there's some of us that kind of want to suffer in silence. You want to suffer alone in a corner. You want to kind of die in a corner by yourself. You don't want anybody to know about it. This passage, guys, is, is um, encouraging you to call out. When you're suffering, to let the rest of the body know. In fact, verse 14 is a command to the sick person. Verse 14, let him call the elders. So if you're sick, if you're suffering, let the church know, right? Second thing to notice in this passage is that praying for healing is one of the roles of elders. One of the roles of elders. It says call the elders. This word elder here is presbyteros, which um, is where we get the word Presbyterian from. Um, But elders and pastors in the Bible are the same thing. I know people talk about church government. There's a whole bunch of ways to do it. The Bible doesn't speak really clearly on it. It actually does. The Bible speaks uniformly that the church is led by elders. And the elders and pastors and overseers and even bishop, if you want to call them that, are all one thing. Okay? So there aren't elder, there isn't pastor and then a bunch of elders or pastor deacons. It's very clear throughout Scripture that the church is led by a plurality, multiple elders or pastors. And if you're, that's new to you, and I could imagine how it'd be new because it's not commonly practiced, let's talk about it because I, I'm, I'm like very certain of this, but I'm very excited to talk about it. So it's not like if you were to like have a question or have some pushback, I'd freak out. I'd be actually be excited. Some of you want to check, talk about church government. So let the elders know when you're sick. Let the elders know when you're suffering. Let us know. So there's me, there's David, there's Josh who is up here, there's Chad who's an elder candidate over there, multiple elders. Let us know, okay? I quit social media, so you could be like Facebook living your death. I won't know. 
okay? I won't know. So don't be like, hey, well, I posted a million times that I'm, you know, rapidly losing blood and you didn't come. It's like, I don't know. So this passage says, call the elders. It doesn't say, like, post it on Twitter. He'll put a, do a little app to him. No, it's call him. Another thing about this too, guys, and, and I know that some of you have, you know, been in situations like this in churches where you felt like nobody came. Um, nobody came and prayed for me. Nobody came and took care of me. One thing I just say is just make sure you did call. Okay? That's really important. This commands actually the sick person or the person that's with the sick person to call them. We can't know unless you call us. We don't know you want us unless you call us, right? So let us know. That's on you. But then we will come. You say, well, I don't want to bother the pastor. Cool thing about plurality of elders is there is no the pastor. There are pastors. There are multiple. We could certainly get a couple of them to come to you and pray for you. And so if you're in the hospital or you're homebound, please call us. We're going to come. We're going to pray for you there. If you are mobile and you're still coming to church and you're able to do that, let's pray for you here. We've done a lot of praying here after service. We'd love to do it. I'll share with you in a little bit some of the answers to prayer we've had, but they've been remarkable. I'm excited about this passage because I've seen this work. Um, It also tells us, guys, to pray for each other in person. Look at verse 14. It says, let them pray over him. Now, this indicates that either the sick person is laying down or it might be over in the sense that you're laying hands on him. But this has been, is being done in person. So often in Christian culture, people will share their suffering, their hardships and stuff like that. And what do we say? We'll pray for you. Far better. I think that's great. Far better would say, can I pray for you right now? Right? And what's really cool about our church, guys, is it's happening constantly here. Sometimes it's hard to get a word in with somebody because they're praying with this person, that person. We have an hour after service here that's available for that, and people use it like crazy, which is great. And I just encourage you, do that more and more. It's beneficial in a couple of ways to pray with the person there. One is it's going to be very encouraging, the person you're praying for. But the other thing, you guys, is it actually is a step of faith for you to do this. It takes a little less faith to pray silently at home about it. It takes a lot more faith to put your hands on that person and pray out loud in a public manner, God, please heal this person. And then to check back and say, you know, hey, are you feeling any better? You know, I want to pray for you again. So there's a step of faith there. That's what God wants in this passage is he wants it verbally. It's done out loud for others to hear. We pray for you. It also teaches about the use of oil. This is a unique passage in the New Testament about this. Um, Mark 6 talks about it really briefly, too. But it says in verse 14 that we're to anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. You might ask, like, what's the deal with the oil? We live in a very kind of materialistic, uh, kind of uh, scientific type time. And so we're like, why, why are we doing with the oil? Why don't we just pray? There's been a few different views of the oil. First view that people have is medicinal. And I know you guys are in essential oils. You're like, oh, yeah, go for it. You know, no, I don't think it is medicinal here. And I'll tell you why. I don't think that the elders were in charge of giving medicine out, okay? I'll tell you, if you want us to be in charge of that, I'm game. I'm a veterinarian, and I'll tell you what I'd do for you guys today. I'd vaccinate every one of you right now. Like on the way up to communion, as it come up for your bread, and I'd be like, I'll give you a nine-way. I'm not afraid to give all your vaccines at once. You know, we're going to get coronavirus in there. We're going to get flu. We're getting everything, right? Everything you could have. So I'm game, but I don't think that's what was going on. I don't think in the first century the elders were in charge of conventional medicine and all that. The assumption here in this passage is that person is seeking out conventional medicine. I love conventional medicine. I love conventional pharmaceuticals. I love science. 
Okay, so I would say pursue conventional medicine. So I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what's going on. The other thing that historically has been thought about this is that the oil is sacramental, meaning the oil has some sort of power. So the Roman Catholic Church Council of Trent pointed to this passage about last rites or extreme unction. So if you were super sick, you're dying, you're in the hospital, priest would come with oil, anoint you, pray for your healing, also receive your confession, you know, penance could be done, get you ready to go, right? And that that's what this passage, some would point to. I don't see any of that in this passage. Um, this passage is clearly just about healing. There's nothing about getting somebody ready to die or anything in this passage. And that was a practice that didn't start till the ninth century. So this is not, this is a newer innovation. Um, what I really think is going on with the oil is the oil is symbolic, guys. The oil is not medicinal. It's not sacramental. It's symbolic. It's symbolic of the presence of God. And as you look through the Old Testament, you see that commonly. You see God's presence being shown as oil, anointing people with something to set somebody apart. And so when we pray for you and we anoint you with oil, we're setting you apart for God's unique care. Oil is not magical. The oil doesn't do anything. The oil is a symbol. It's a wonderful symbol, though, isn't it? Of having this presence of God, the presence of the power of God here. We're setting you apart for God's special care. Uh, I want to let you know that the oil is a very small amount of oil. I had this young guy, (laughs) we were praying for him, and I'm like, hey, we're going to anoint you with oil. And he's like, do you mind if I take my jacket off? I I really like this jacket. And I'm like, dude, we're a mobile church. We're not going to like pour gallons of oil over you, right? It's a very small amount of oil. It's symbolic. I'm not going to douse you. It's not going to be dripping down your beard like Aaron's beard in the Old Testament or anything like that, okay? But I just want to let you know that. Some people are weirded out by this whole thing, but it's great. It's a beautiful, beautiful symbol of God's presence and his care for you. It also teaches, guys, that it's Jesus, not the oil or the elders that heal. And that's very emphatic in this text. Look at verse 14. It says that we're to pray in the name of the Lord. Lord in the New Testament almost always means Jesus specifically. And James has used the word Lord for Jesus in this letter. So almost always in the New Testament, you see Lord, he's talking about Jesus, specifically Jesus. And so this is saying that Jesus is the one who heals, guys. Not the oil, not the people, it's Jesus. And then look at verse 15, and it says, and the Lord will raise him up. So we pray in the name of the Lord, and it's the Lord who raises him up. So the Lord needs credit for this. We don't give credit to the person who prayed or, or the procedure. We follow the procedure because that's what God's given us. In faith, we do what he says, and then it's the Lord who raises up. Guys, you realize that healing is one of the blessings that Jesus earned for us through the cross. Uh, Matthew eight seventeen links healing to Isaiah 53, and he says that Jesus took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And so whenever you're healed, you're being healed by grace. It's the grace of God through the sacrifice of Christ. It's another gift of the atonement. And so when God gives us uh, healing, it's, it's through grace. And what's really neat about this verse is that healing was a huge part of Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus was constantly healing people. It's one of the main things everybody knows that he did. And he's still healing through his people today. This is his continued ministry, not ours, through his people. A couple of questions you might have from James um, that I think commonly come up. One of them would be, does God always heal if we just have enough faith? You might get that feeling from verse 15. It says, and the prayer of of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So the question here is, so, you know, if I wasn't healed, is it because I just didn't have enough faith? A lot of people teach this, right? This is tremendously damaging to sick and suffering people, okay? 
Because they're already sick and suffering, and then if they don't get healed, then what? Well, then they don't believe either. Okay? It's very damaging. And not only is it just damaging, it's also not true. When you look at the Bible, we see many examples of people not being healed in the New Testament. One example would be for Timothy 5. Paul talks to Timothy and he says this. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your various ailments. You might think, well, Paul, why didn't you just heal him? Sure, Paul prayed for him, right? Sure, he prayed for him, didn't heal him. 2 Timothy 4, I left Trophimus who was ill in Miletus. You're like, Paul, why'd you leave Trophimus ill in Miletus? Why didn't you pray for him? Sure, he did, didn't heal him. Uh, famously, uh, Paul prayed multiple times for the thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is, but it says in the flesh, very well could be a physical ailment. He says this in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See the way Paul's processing that? He doesn't go like, oh, I must not have had enough faith. Or the people that prayed for me didn't have enough faith. Because actually this passage, the faith is probably the elder's faith that they're talking about in here. It, Paul didn't process it that way. He didn't assume that if someone isn't healed that they didn't have enough faith. What did Paul, how did Paul process He goes, well, God must have a greater purpose in me remaining sick or perhaps dying. And that's a real deal, right? That's a real deal. I love what Blaise Pascal said about his illness that took his life. He said this before he died. He said, let the disorder in my body be the means through which my soul is put in order. Isn't that awesome? Let the disorder in my body be the means through which my soul will be put in order. I just think, amen. Like, let's have that attitude and the attitude of Paul when, when the healing doesn't come. Guys, believing that God always heals, if we just have enough faith, is called an overrealized eschatology. Okay? Eschatology is a study of end times. Overrealized means that you think you're a little further in the timeline than you really are, right? So there's a timeline. We live in the time between Jesus' defeat of sickness and suffering and death on the cross and his removal of sickness and suffering and death at his return. We live in this time. And during this time, he is healing. We get all kinds of foretastes of the time to come. But we're living in a time where there's still death. We live in the, in the time, for the World War II analogy would be, we live in the time between D-Day and V-Day. There's still a lot of suffering going on. There's still a lot of death. And the fact of the matter is, is that 100% of us will die. I'll just let that sit with you. We don't like to think about that, right? One, if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, 100% of us will die. It doesn't take away, though, guys, that God does give healings as foretastes of the kingdom to come. And that's what Jesus was doing when he's going around healing all these people. It was an act of compassion. It was showing his power, but it was also, guys, showing what the world to come is going to be like. It won't be blindness in the world to come. There won't be deafness, there won't be paralytics, there won't be all these, there won't be demon possession, there won't be all these things in the world to come. And those, so those were little foretastes, those were little appetizers of the world to come. So you might ask yourself, okay, well what kind of faith do I need when I pray for healing? i got a slide about this, but I just want to make it really clear. I want to make this really equipping, because you guys are going to pray for healing, we're going to pray for you for healing when you need it. And I want us all to be on the same page about what kind of faith is required when we pray for somebody for healing. And these would be the, the three that I'd say. We should believe as we pray that Jesus can heal. Okay, You guys can all do that, right? 
We can all believe Jesus heals. We saw him do it, right? When we saw him in the Gospels. We saw him heal. So we all believe he can. We all should believe that Jesus still heals, okay? And you guys, and verse 16 is a good example of that. It talks about Elijah and stuff. We'll get to it. But there's every reason to believe that Jesus still heals. And we can all do that, right? You guys can all do that, okay? So that's a faith. Uh, what I want to show you is that the faith required for healing is not something you can't do if you're a believer. You can do, these are all faith that you can do when you pray. And then we should believe that Jesus loves to heal, okay? And if you were not sure about that, look at his ministry. He's constantly healing people. As obviously, he loves doing it. Jesus loves to heal his people when it's the best thing for them. You say, well, that sounds like a loophole. No, you want that part okay? Jesus loves to heal his people when that's the best thing for him. Sometimes it's not, okay? But when it's the best thing for him, he loves to heal. And then, so we want to pray that, when we pray, we want to believe Jesus can heal, he does heal, he loves to heal, and then as we pray, we ask that he would heal. We do not make any assurances he will heal. Never do that. Never when you're praying for somebody, tell them, that Jesus for sure is healing them. That is way above your pay grade, okay? I don't care how much you get paid. That's above your pay grade, okay? But, that it, but praying in faith, if you prayed earnestly in faith in those three ways, and then you prayed that he would heal. And now I think this is important too. Um, I'll just tell you, if you end up praying for me for healing, pray that God would really heal me, okay? Don't pull the punch on that, right? Sometimes what we'll do is we pray for healing and go, yeah, but if it's not your will, it's totally okay. Like, no, 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 no. Don't give up so quick. <laughs> like, I want you to pray for my healing. I want you to pray that he would earnestly pray fervently that he would heal me. Now, you can also pray that God will strengthen me in the inner man and keep me, you know, do what he needs to do through me during this time, but don't pull the punch, okay? If it is your will, is kind of understood, okay? And so pray that he would. We've had a ton of answers to healing, and I'm going to give you a few, and the danger of doing this is that a bunch of you are going to feel left out because we've had a ton. And we've had a ton here because we've actually practiced this since the beginning, and we've actually practiced this since the beginning, not because of me, but because of guys like Chad, who really wanted to, and I knew it was biblical, and we should, so we have, right? But he's really pushed me in this way. We had a client, one of my clients, I'm a horse veterinarian, one of my clients was coming here for a little while, had a brain tumor. Uh, they couldn't fully remove it uh, surgically. They were doing some radiation, but they told the guy he just had a couple months to live, and he's done. Well, can I get your affairs in order? Um, I was visiting him a couple weeks ago. <laughs> he's been good for four years. So he's had, like, every six-month scan, the brain tumor's gone. And they were like, well, you know, maybe when we scanned it last time, that was just inflammation. Well, okay, well, why did you tell the guy he was dying in two months then? It's like, and one of the things I want to warn us against, guys, is we don't try to explain away what God does, right? I think we're going to have a lot more power in praying if when he does it, we go like, praise God. We don't go like, I think that would happen anyway. You know, let's not, let's not play that game. Uh, another one was uh, on the totally other end. We'll go brain tumor, we'll go back pain, okay? So a client of mine was coming here. She had severe back pain. We prayed for her. She told us she had heat during the prayer. She could feel heat, and she didn't have back pain after that. Like, went away instantaneously, which is awesome. There was one of you, actually one of you who's here, uh, who had intense abdominal pain for weeks, and you're like, ah, I'm going to need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, yes, you do. We prayed. I specifically prayed, like, Lord, heal her. Um, and, Lord, I just pray that when she wakes up tomorrow morning, the pain will be gone. I just, for some reason, I like to do something like that, just so I can kind of see what's going on. And sure enough, it was gone the next day. And it's not returned, and that's been like a year. Um, one of the guys in our church, he's not here right now, much older man, 
And uh, he had a lung mass, and the surgeons were so sure it was cancer that he was scheduled for surgery, they're going to go in and cut this mass out of his lungs. And um, we prayed about it, and they did go in. They were very certain that's what it was. Went in, it was a quarter the size it was before and not cancerous. So that's awkward if it wasn't cancer to start with. Like, you don't go, like, doing surgery on people's lungs unless you're really sure. And so I believe that was a legit healing. It was cancer, and then it wasn't cancer. One of you who's in this room had horrible Crohn's disease. We prayed for you, and there was like a year of remission. Just boom, it was gone for, for a year. Uh, one of you here, um, fibromyalgia, severe fibromyalgia pain, wasn't able to come to church off and on, and we prayed six months of remission. Uh, a friend of mine who, uh, she's, she's had a rough time. She's a veterinarian. She was, we were in vet school together. Um, she has had uh, cancer, and she's had you know, kidney transplant, a bunch of things. But anyway, she's on these transplant drugs, and her liver enzymes are shooting up. And it's super scary because she needs those drugs, and her liver is obviously going down the tubes. And we prayed for her here. She came to visit. We prayed, and her liver enzymes went back to normal, hasn't had a problem again. I've had all these over and over and over and over again. It's amazing. I mean, praise God. It's just incredible, right? Incredible healings. And I've got, yeah, we, we, we could certainly clap about that. Yeah, we could certainly clap about that. And I keep a list, right? I keep a list of these. Now, it is true that we've had a bunch of times when we've prayed and even thought God was going to heal, and he didn't. Super heartbreaking. And I have a list of those, too. Thankfully, that list is not nearly as long as the list of healing, but we definitely see that, too. We live in that time between Jesus' defeat of suffering and sickness and death and his elimination of it. And so these are just foretastes. But we've definitely had that. We've definitely had people that we care about that were in this room worshiping with us that are no longer here because God took them. You know, God chose not to heal them. Chose to heal them in a better way, right? Another question this raises is, is sickness always due to sin. You might get that impression from verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. A lot of people kind of wonder about this. Now, we know from Scripture that sin and suffering are due to sin generally, right? We as a humanity have rebelled against God. The reason why this world is in such rough shape and all these, we go like, why are all these bad things happening? Is because of sin, generally, right? But the question here is, is personal sin the reason for personal sickness? People link these, right? In ancient times, it was very common for people to think that sickness was linked directly to people's personal sin. Um, we know from Scripture, though, that sickness is not always due to personal sin. We know a really great example is Job's boils. Remember Job's boils? That was not due to sin. But the people that were there had such a simplistic view. They thought that if he's sick, he must be sinning. And they tortured him with that. And I want to just say to you guys, don't torture people like that, right? His friends tortured him. That kind of simplistic teaching hurts people. And in John 9, verse 3, Jesus said, It is not because of this man's sin or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So we know that sickness isn't always due to personal sin. We also know that it can be. In John 5, Jesus says to the paralytic, Go and sin no more, that nothing worse will happen to you. So it's not always due to personal sin. It can be. We know in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, people were eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, getting sick and dying from it, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died, okay? 
So that, that can be the case, that God can use sickness and suffering to discipline his people. Like Pascal said, he can be using sickness to, um, to order our souls through the disorder of our bodies. But sickness isn't always the, the result of our sin. And we can see that in this verse. Take a look at verse uh, 15. Notice the word if. Super important word if, very small. It says, if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. That's not an indicative he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. It's not that. It's not an indicative. It's a subjunctive, which means maybe. It's a possibility, right? Now, grammar is super important, right? If. Um, and so I would just say to you, if you're dealing with sickness and you're wondering if it's due to sin, I would say consider sin as a cause. Confess any known sin, but then move on. Because what people will do is they'll think that there's some sort of sin they can't quite figure out in their lives that's making all these things happen to them. God doesn't play games like that, guys. If what you're going through is due to sin, and you ask the Lord, pray Psalm 139, search me and know me, tell me if there's any wicked way in me, and you come up empty, you're done. You don't need to go looking, okay? Um, so it can be the case, but God would, it would be something very clear. And so let's pray, guys, for one another for healing. Prayer is your greatest opportunity to care for everyone here every day. And we think about praying for healing. Just remember, you just need to pray uh, believing that God can heal, that he still heals, that he loves to heal, and then you ask that he would heal. And let's do a lot more praying for each other in person, you know, instead of just saying, I'll pray for you, just do it on the spot, you know, it's, it's not going to be as scary as you think. Your eyes will be closed, you don't even have to look at them, you know, just put your hand on them and pray for them and, and practice that. Um, I actually have used that quite a bit, you know, at work. So I'm a veterinarian, and so my, my clients a lot of times want to tell me about their health problems. Some of them are very personal and I don't really want to hear it. And like, there's a reason why I didn't go into human medicine. I don't really want to hear all this. And what I've often said to them is like, you want me to pray right now? And it's surprising to them, but you could be doing that. That could be used evangelistically. Who knows how God would use that? And so pray for one another. We have a whole hour to do that after service. Pray for one another about our sin. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice that we are to confess our sins to one another. Another kind of, I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church, but it, it fits really well here. But the New Testament doesn't teach that we need to confess our sins to priests. Who does it say we confess our sins to? One another, right? That's very clear. Actually, the New Testament not only doesn't say that we uh, need to confess our sins to a priest, the New Testament doesn't teach that the church is led by priests. So that's kind of a big deal, right? Priests are a Mosaic covenant thing. Right? If you go back in the Old Testament, priests were in the Mosaic Covenant. We live in the New Covenant. Nowhere in the New Testament does it teach the church is led by priests. Right? And the New Covenant teaches that all believers are priests. We all have that access to God. The New Testament teaches that the church is led by elders. Elders aren't priests because elders don't make sacrifices and they aren't your mediators. Okay, and I think if you come from a Roman Catholic background or high church background, you might think that somehow an elder is, you know, has special access, can get you behind the stage, behind the scenes, right? You know, behind the stage pass or something like that, or that they make some sort of sacrifices, and we don't, okay? Um, verse 16 says that we should confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that we may be healed. And I, I know this can be hard to do. I find it hard to do to confess my sin to others. I think sometimes we have an easier time confessing to God, um, but we have a hard time confessing to one another, but it's, it's super important to do. And I just want to encourage you that it's actually a statement of the gospel when you do it. 
We're Christians, meaning we believe that we're so bad that Jesus had to die for us to be able to be with God, right? Amen? And so when we confess our sin, we're actually acknowledging the gospel, that yes, we are that bad. Yes, we have not graduated from a place of sin. And I just want to encourage you guys, there's nothing that you could have gotten yourselves into sin-wise that I could not get myself into as well if I had the same circumstances. Like, I don't believe I'm immune to anything you could possibly tell me, and I don't believe that anyone in here is immune to the sin that you're going to confess. And so I would just say, confess your sin. Notice here in this passage that it's dangerous not to. Verse 16 says, confess your sins one another and pray for one another, what? That you may be healed. There's a bit of a threat there, right? Proverbs 28 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so we're called to do that. We're called to confess our sins one to another. And it's dangerous for us to hide it. And, And I know this might freak some of you guys out, but I've been praying that if we won't, as a church, individually here, confess our sins one to another, I'm praying that God will expose it. And you're like, well, I didn't want that prayer. <laughs> Just no. Fair warning, okay? Fair warning. is, And I'm not doing surveillance on you. I'm not going to expose it. I'm just praying, like, if we won't obey this, that God would expose it. And he does. It'd be a lot safer for you to just confess. Confess to your spouse Confess to your parents, confess to your friends, confess to somebody in this room. You don't, it doesn't have to be to me, it says to one another. I, I love what John says here about the life of openness we're called to in John 1, uh, first, sorry, 1 John 1, 6. He says this, he says, if we have fellowship with him, with Christ, and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice his truth. And then listen to this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're called to walk in the light. We're not called to be perfect. We're not called to perfection. What we're called to do is to walk in the light. You know, And that would be confessing our sins to each other. That's walking in the light. You guys, the dark, the hidden, the unconfessed is where it grows, like mold in your walls. Right? The light is antiseptic right? We need to confess it. And when we confess it, one of the cool things about confessing our sins to each other is we burn the bridge, don't we? We burn the bridge. Kind of hard to go back to it when my brother knows what's going on. He's going to check up on me and stuff like that. It's so great. You're familiar with the term burn the bridge, right? When an army was going to invade a country or something like that, and they didn't want to like be turn, turn around and leave, they burn the bridge behind them. They're like, we're committed. We're going all the way. We burn the bridge when we confess our sin. We're not called to perfection. We're called to walk in the light. And I've been super encouraged, guys, by how much confession of sin goes on here. As I've talked to people, I'm like, oh, people just put on their church face. And, oh, people are just fake. And, you know, they act like they got it all together. And I'm like, I don't think you've met these people. (laughs) Because they're not like that at all. Like, they will confess their sin. It's a beautiful thing. I was reading this book, um, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave by Ed Welsh. It's an awesome biblical counseling book on addictions and not just substance abuse, but all kinds of things. And as I was reading this a couple years ago, he had this part in here where he said this. He goes, what are the chances of this happening? You answer the phone and you hear someone say, I simply had to call you. I've been struggling with alcohol dependency or pornography or prescription drugs or anger or something like that. And, and I know it's, it's hurting my family, and I know it's against God. I need your help. 
He goes, how often do you even get that, he says in this book. And then he says, let's just say that it is rare at best. If it does happen, you're witnessing a dramatic work of God's Spirit. I remember reading that and going like, nope, that's just totally common. Isn't that awesome? I can honestly tell you in our church, that is totally common. It's not rare at all. So what does that mean? We're witnessing a dramatic work of God's Spirit. And so if you're a person that needs to do that, just know you're in good company here. No matter who you confess to, I'm sure that they in recent past had confessed some sin to someone else as well. They know how to receive a confession because they've given them. So let's walk in the light, guys, right? Let's walk in the light. Um, it's a massive evidence of grace, guys, in you guys that you're like this. So, so we hear these confessions. We pray for each other. That's an important part of it. So uh, I confess my sin to you. You pray for me. Let's, guys, believe in the power of prayer. Let's, let's believe that prayer changes things. Let's, let's not think, you know, sometimes we think like prayer, oh, yeah, prayer was really powerful for, for Bible people in Bible times, right? Special Bible people in, in special Bible times, and we live in some other time. Guys, look at verse 16. James blows that up with this example of Elijah. You think, oh, you know, prayer isn't what it used to be. And then James says this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave its, its rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In case that's like the exact thing you want to do is control the rain with your prayers, there was actually a real good reason for this. The reason was is that, is that Israel was involved in Baal worship, and Baal was the god that would bring the rain. So this was actually a way of shaming Baal and his worshipers, okay? It was like, hey, why don't you call Baal about the rain, you know? It was to shame the false gods of, of the place. And so, um, but can you imagine the power of that? So he prays, and it doesn't rain for three years. It's just amazing power in prayer. And in your mind, you might think, well, yeah, but, you know, that was a time of great miracles, and yeah, he was a prophet. But what does James say in verse 16? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Underline that. What's he saying by implication? You could see great responses to prayer, too. He's saying there's actually no difference. Isn't that crazy? It seems kind of strongly stated, doesn't it? He was just a man with a nature like ours. He was a mere mortal like us. And so we could have great responses to prayer, too. We tend to think that somehow, you know, prayer just isn't what it used to be. And James says, no, it's actually just the opposite. It's exactly what it used to be. And there's a couple of qualifications you have in there. One is it's a righteous man, a righteous person. What does that mean? Ordinary Christian. An ordinary Christian that is dedicated to the will of God. That's a righteous person. Somebody that's in Christ, righteous because of Christ, and righteous in their life and that they're committed to God's will. Okay, so you guys check, right? And prays fervently. The, the literal translation of that would be he prayed with praying. You guys tried that? You guys tried praying with praying? Have you ever prayed with praying? <laughs> I love that, right? Prayed fervently. Um, George Mueller, he was a, not a, a Bible person, and he didn't live in Bible times. He was an ordinary Christian pastor. The only unusual thing about him is that he invented the faux hawk and <laughs> that he had a sweet beard, okay? He lived in the 1800s, and is he so hipster? You see this guy? Like some like hipster coffee shop? This is crazy. But anyway, the reason I bring him up is that he had page after page after page of amazing answered prayer. He actually made his life an experiment in prayer. He said this, I have joyfully dedicated my whole life to be an example of how much can be accomplished by prayer and faith. 
So he's like, okay, I don't know what to do with my life. Okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to make my life an experiment. Okay, he had orphan houses and he did all kinds of crazy things. It was awesome. But his main thing was, he's like, I'm going to make my life an experiment to show how much can be done by prayer and faith. And I want to tell you how he did it. This is how he did it. He believed passages like this. He prayed. Yeah, that's the most important thing about prayer is that we do it. Okay. He believed it. He prayed. And then you know what he did? He kept records. He kept records. And then he watched for responses. And then you know what he did? He gave God credit for it. It would really only take those four things. We believe in prayer. You're in a good place for that right now because we just looked at this passage. We pray, keep records. Okay, that's the way he grew in his faithfulness is you keep records. Like with this message on healing, like I went back and looked at the records and there were a bunch of others. There was, you know, one of you guys that's here, brother-in-law was in a coma and a ventilator, you know, it was his, it was his heart and his liver were gone and he was unconscious and we prayed for him and he's doing well now, except he's not following the Lord, which is crazy. Um, but, you know, I mean, I had a whole list of them. I had to leave a bunch out, right? So there's a whole list of these. And I was like, oh, yeah, that happened, you know? Like, that would be a really terrible thing to forget that that happened, you know? Um, but you keep records. So believe, pray, keep records, and then give God credit for it. Don't be like, well, maybe it was the antibiotics. Well, the antibiotics weren't working for months. And, you know, we prayed and it was healed, okay? So let's believe in the power of prayer. And one last way that we could do that is in verses 19 through 20. I didn't cover this real quick, but it's, we should pray and pursue those who are straying. Look at verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Fun thing about James is the way he ends his letter. So you guys know how Paul and Peter ended letters? He's like, hey, peace out, peace be with you. Hey, say hi to so-and-so. Oh, hey, so-and-so says hi. It's like a normal goodbye, right? How does James end it? Hey, here's one more thing you should do. Right? This is classic James, right? You're full of imperatives. He's like, hey, here's one more task for you. you know? So he ends on this whole like living faith, active, call to action, right? And the call to action is to pursue those who are straying. So we saw the sick that we care for in prayer, sinning that we care for in prayer, and now straying. This word wander is a passive verb. I think that's very important because it's, it's, it's passive in the sense that this wandering away from Jesus is it's like veering off a trail. Has it been hiking? And, you know, you think this is the trail and you kind of veer off or maybe you saw an animal and you started walking out that way. And all of a sudden you're like, how did I get here? How did I end up so far away from the Lord? You guys been there? Isn't that what wandering's like? It's like you, you, you wake up one day and you go like, how long have I been doing this? How long have I been walking on this path? How long have I been careless about my faith? Uh, Tolkien uh, said this. He said, not all who wander are lost. You see memes with this all the time with some trees. and Not all who wander are lost. Anyone that's wandering from Jesus is lost. Okay? And in great danger. Right? Look at the text. If you look at verse um, 20, you can see saves his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I mean, there's great danger here. The danger is death, not just the first death, but the second death. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for man to die once and after comes the judgment. And so there's this a wandering puts us in danger of the second death, of hell, of, of, of punishment. And that punishment comes because of what? In verse 20, a multitude of uncovered sins. 
you know? And our valley, guys, is a valley full of wanderers. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? There's a lot of people in our, our valley that have never been to church, but how many of them have had connections to a local church and now are wandering from the Lord? I mean, it seems like, I haven't done percentages, but it's got to be most of our mission field are people that have wandered from the Lord. People wander for various reasons. Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower, you know, persecution, hardship, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches. You talk to people and they cite things like bad church experiences and busyness and doubts and the church being irrelevant to them. And as a church, guys, what James wants to tell us is we want to be used by the Lord to bring them back. Don't we? Isn't that why we're here? We're here to help the wandering come back. And so let's pray and let's invite wanderers to return to the Lord. What's the message we bring them? You know, you, you find this person in the woods, lost, wandered from the Lord. What's the message we bring them? What's the gospel to wanderers? It's in 1 Peter 2. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you, listen to this, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isn't that a great invitation as somebody that's been wandering? You say, well, like, I wandered too far. It's like, nope, nope. By his wounds you can be healed. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. Um, there's, there's no sin that has to permanently keep you away from the Lord. It says here, you can be returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, what happens to sheep when they wander? Right? It's dangerous, right? It's, it, it's, it's imminent death, and yet we can return to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. And wouldn't that be the best response we could possibly have from the book of James, is that our wandering hearts return, and that we become the kind of people who help other wanderers return. And um, in the Lord's Supper, we have a, a visible sign of that promise. It's a visible sign that God has given us to remind us of the good news for wanderers, good news for those who have sinned against him. It reminds us how Jesus saves our souls from death. And on the cross, Jesus defeated both physical and our eternal death. Right? He's going to resurrect us and make us new. And the second death will have no power over us because of Jesus, if you're trusting in him. You want to drink to that? You can drink to that, right? That's what the Lord's Supper is about. That the physical death will be undone and your spiritual death is not coming for you in Jesus. It also reminds us how Jesus covers a multitude of sins. Do you have a multitude of sins? Do you? Do a little inventory. Do you have a multitude of sins? I have a multitude of sins. I have many that I could think of right now. I have many that I've forgotten about. Many that I probably didn't even know about because I was just so hard-hearted. In the gospel, we hear that our multitude of sins have been covered. You're like, well, I can still see them. God's like, I can't. I'm not worried about what you're worried about. Your sins have been covered. If that's your hope today, the Lord's Supper is for you. If you're a wanderer and you've been wandering until even this morning, but you've heard the gospel, you're ready to return and repent of your sin, the Lord's Supper is for you. The Lord's Supper would only not be for the person who wants to stay in their wandering, who wants to stay lost, who's not ready to repent of their sin. And if that's you, I would just ask you, why not? Why not give your life to him who gave his life 
for you. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to feed our souls. We're going to feed our souls on Christ because this isn't just a remembrance, but is a way in which God spiritually feeds us on Christ. And so this is like a medicine, right, for our souls, for our wandering prone and weak souls. And so we take it. And I would encourage you too, as you take it, if there's somebody in line next to you, that you could take it with them. Take it with somebody outside of your family to just show that we're one body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter from James. And uh, sometimes we feel like he's being rough on us. And, uh, and yet it's so good, Lord. Your rebukes are good. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when our, when our consciences have been pierced, when we've been given conviction of sin, Lord, it is you as a faithful surgeon making an incision to heal us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would repent of all of our sin this morning, that we trust in you, that we'd worship you with hearts full of joy. Lord Jesus, stay with us. Be our companion on the way. Kindle our hearts. Awaken our hope that we may know you as you are revealed in the scriptures and in the breaking of this bread. We pray grant this for the sake of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.